0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Everyone feels under greater psychic pressure these days. But we adults hope that children, who have always been seen as naturally resilient, have been spared the stress. Unfortunately, kids are increasingly experiencing mental health problems like anxiety at younger and younger ages, and this trend has been going on for years. My guest today wrote a cover article for The Atlantic on the causes and cures of this phenomenon. Her name is Kate Julian, and we we'll begin our conversation today by describing the extent to which problems like depression, anxiety, and even suicide have been on the rise among children and how these issues correlate with continued problems later in life. We then talk about the possible causes behind the increase in childhood anxiety and whether technology and social media are to blame. We then delve into the idea of how parents are perpetuating their children's anxiety through their own anxiety and their willingness to make accommodations to keep their kids calm and happy. We then get into the idea that getting your children comfortable with being uncomfortable can inoculate them against anxiety. And we end our conversation with a discussion of whether more exposure to the news of a tumultuous world might actually make kids more resilient the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash childhoodanxiety. Okay, Julian, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me back.
0: So we had you on about a year and a half ago to talk about an Atlantic cover article you wrote called The Sex Recession. That's episode 464 for those who want to check that out. You got another Atlantic cover story that came out in May called The Anxious Child. And it's all about this increasing rate of childhood anxiety, depression that we're seeing in the West and the United States. What kicked off your research into this topic?
1: So this is actually a very personal issue for me. I have two kids who are six and 10, and their family history, my family history, includes way more than its share of mental illness. Over the past 15 years, I've lost a family member to suicide and another one I've watched struggle with profound psychiatric disability and addiction issues. And so Leaving aside journalism for a second, as a parent, like I, I really have no greater or deeper wish than that my kids not be afflicted with some of those problems. When my editors at The Atlantic asked me if I'd like to do something about childhood mental health, I was very excited for those personal reasons. And they were alarmed as you sort of just mentioned by these numbers about suicide rates and depression rates and anxiety rates in kids really going up and I think the numbers about adolescents are more familiar but as I started digging into this and trying to figure out where I would focus the piece what surprised me the most was first of all that some of these really troubling markers are actually extending down to younger ages. So there's been a doubling of the suicide rate among five to 11 year olds. I mean, that's a group of kids that we thought didn't have predisposition to that problem. What was more exciting though, to me was that the people I spoke to all said, you know, a lot of this is actually really preventable. So if we look at how various mental health problems start it's anxiety disorders. And those start a lot earlier than we used to think. They start in childhood, like in elementary school age kids, and there's something that we can do about it. So that was sort of the genesis for the piece.
0: So let's talk about what childhood anxiety and depression look like. Because you're right, we we typically, when we think about childhood mental health issues, we think about adolescence, you don't think about five-year-olds having depression or even contemplating suicide we i mean like that statistic on suicide that was probably the most gut-wrenching thing that i read in your articles like the five-year-olds like they would even think that that's a thing like i would never i would never think that a five-year-old would know that you can just kill yourself if you're feeling so terrible but so what does it look like what is how does it usually manifest itself in young childhood anxiety and depression
1: So the first thing I want to say is that we do have to bear in mind that some of this is about increased awareness, right? So it may be a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who's a child psychiatrist, cautioned me on this. You know, some of these numbers with kids and with kids showing up at the ER may be a result of parents or teachers who are more likely to take something a kid says really seriously and maybe even overreact. So I do want to take that with a grain of salt. That being said, of the two things that we just talked about, depression and anxiety, depression remains among kids much less common than anxiety. It doesn't mean that kids don't suffer from depression. And some of the symptoms that they might manifest are not necessarily so different than those that adults might. So you know, just all the usual things like lack of appetite, difficulty sleeping, sleeping too much, poor concentration, irritability, intense sensitivity, all those kinds of things. And I think as a parent where you would sort of start to worry about whether there's a problem is if it's really starting to interfere with the kid's life. And then you would want to probably talk to somebody about it. Anxiety, which is much more common in kids, we should sort of pause here too to say what we're talking about because anxiety itself is not the problem. Everybody experiences anxiety. Anxiety is a normal universal human response to stress and worry. The problem becomes when, again, as with the depression, it starts to get in the way of your life. And that's when Professionals would say that it rises to the level of something that would be called a disorder. So where the kid is so anxious about something that they really can't participate in normal activities, where they can't go to school or they refuse to go to school or they don't want to be separated from their parents and so forth. And what they've found in the past 20 or so years when they've done some sort of longitudinal studies of mental health issues and they take adults who suffer from depression, addiction, other issues, and they go back and they say sort of what was the first sign of a problem here, they find that it was the type of anxiety more often than not that I just mentioned. And that's, you know, that's that's pretty striking.
0: And you know, something that you point out too in the articles that Childhood anxiety often goes away on its own, but sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, how does it continue to affect individuals into adulthood?
1: So, you know, I think what we're talking about again is something where if you don't learn to deal with something that's causing you a lot of worry, your effort to avoid that worry or that feeling of anxiety kind of starts to run your life. So an example that's often used is like fear of dogs, right? So lots of kids are afraid of dogs. That's not in itself necessarily such a big deal, but let's say the kid's really, really afraid of dogs. And let's say furthermore that the kid doesn't ever learn to deal with that fear. And then that fear kind of snowballs and becomes one of several things the kid's really scared of. The kid may not learn to tolerate those feelings of like intense worry and anxiety. And so they may start to, again, avoid things, whether it be social, sort of normal social relationships. They may later in life start doing things like self-medicating. And we know also that there's a really strong, close relationship between depression and anxiety. The anxiety tends over time in adolescence and adulthood to swing into depression.
0: And so we know that anxiety, childhood anxiety is increasing the past 20 years. I mean, do we have any like rates, like statistics on percentage of children?
1: Yeah. So I think in adolescence, we see that about a third of them suffer from anxiety that would be classified as like an, as a disorder over the course of adolescence. I think um, in terms of the Rate of increase, it's about a 17% increase in the past five years at last count. So I think that study was published in 2018. So it's a pretty short period of time to see that type of increase. And I think the other thing that I would note is the age of onset that's recently been determined. The median age of onset for anxiety disorders is 11 that's really young and for some anxiety disorders such as phobia which i was talking about which is typically one of the third, first things to pop up it could be even earlier that that median age is 7 and i mean i think
0: we've all seen these articles published talking about the the increasing rates of childhood anxiety and we always want like why what's going on why is this happening so like what factors are do we know that are contributing to the rise of mental illness amongst children
1: So I think that a lot of the discussion has been focused recently on the question of whether it's technology and phones and social media. The Atlantic a few years ago ran a piece by Jean Twenge, who's a psychologist at San Diego State, sort of it was called, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? And there is something very appealing about that narrative or that answer, because if you look at when some of these rates started to really tick up... It's right around the time that smartphones came out in 2008 and also around the time that social media like Facebook became common and available to teenagers. The problem with that narrative is that we haven't seen the same upticks in other countries that also have smartphones and social media across the board. And the more studies that have been done on this, the more it started to look like when you look at everybody together, the effect size is pretty small. So the best we can say is that when you look at all these studies together, it does look like there is probably a role of social media and smartphone use. It probably depends a lot on how much you're using of these things and how you're using them. And the effect seems to be most pronounced for girls, for people who use a lot of social media as opposed to like gaming, which seems to be less problematic, and people who have underlying issues with anxiety. There are a couple of other theories here, uh, theories that I'd like to throw in here. One is that this stuff also coincides with pretty big changes in our school system, and there's been some interesting research that have looked at like you know the the rollout of school reform in the 2000s and tied that to like ADHD diagnoses, like looking at it county by county and seeing a connection there. And another really interesting fact to my mind is that suicide rates and attempts in teens seem to be spiking now in the fall when school starts up again, whereas historically that used to be the case in the summer. So that's a sort of interesting clue that there might be something else going on beyond just the phones. And then the sort of final thing I would throw out there is this question of how we're responding to things. Like, are we making them better? Or are we making them worse by the way that we're responding to our concerns about kids' mental health? And
0: that's what you devote, the lion's share of your article. But on, on that idea of technology, I mean, I've I've been one of those people who's like, oh yeah, it's technology. But I mean, as the research comes out, it, as you said, it's so showing that people who are kids who are already predisposed to anxiety or depression, they tend to use social media or technology in a way that's not healthy. But kids who are doing fine, like social media, doesn't seem to have an effect. And it's weird. There's other statistics show that kids who have no technology or access to social media, like they're actually they do worse too because they've they're cut off from all social connection with their peers.
1: That is such a fascinating and good point. I'm so glad you raised that because I forgot to. So yeah, it's very tempting to say like, Oh, well I should just take the phone away from the kid or not give the phone to the kid. And, problem with that is, first of all, if all the other kids have phones, you're just going to make your kid a pariah. Because the truth is, like, that is how kids are transacting their social life. And we're not really going to change that. And there are also some really interesting studies showing, as as you suggest, like, kids who actually text more do better in terms of depression and anxiety rates. I mean, that kind of makes sense. They have, like, you know, more ready social support. So
0: let's talk about that third factor of how we're responding. And you quote a therapist in the article that mental health crisis in children can be self-perpetuating. In what way? What's going on there?
1: So I think there's been a lot of awareness and concern about these things. But I think a lot of us, and certainly I would be in this category until very recently, don't actually know sort of what anxiety is. And so we hear that word and we think anxiety, bad, kids are having problems with anxiety, must shield child from anxiety. And what that tends to translate into is stuff that actually makes the problem worse. So as I was saying before... If what we know from a huge body of research, and I would pause here to say anxiety turns out to be like the topic that is the most understood in mental health at this point. I mean, there is a ton of research on it and it's it's really solid. So if we know that anxiety is the hallmark of anxiety is avoidance of the thing that's freaking you out, and that the way to treat that, which we can get into more detail about, is to expose yourself to that thing and essentially build up resilience to it. What happens if your parents are instead trying to shelter you from feelings of discomfort or from difficult experiences, the very things that would sort of allow you to build up the emotional muscle that you need to tolerate life's difficulties? So, if you're a kid who's really shy and you have a lot of anxiety around being called on by the teacher, and your mom has heard that anxiety is a bad thing and there's a big problem with anxiety, maybe your mom is going to do something like call the teacher or email the teacher and say, please don't call on Lila. It's really upsetting her. So that seems like a good short-term solution, but it doesn't help Lila in the long-term. A bunch of people I talked to kept saying versions of the same thing, which was, "You know, we need to think about how short-term gains are leading to long-term pain. Okay. In therapy, they often like to say the reversed short-term pain can lead to long-term gains. In other words, like dealing with something unpleasant in the here and now can help you deal with it better in the long-term. And it seems like we've kind of flipped that logic on its head and we're doing something with the best of intentions that's, that's keeping kids from having to kind of grapple with stuff that they need to learn.
0: Well, oh, yeah. something The thing that stuck out for me when you were talking about this idea of the childhood mental health sort of self-perpetuates, it sounds like like parents anxiety about their kids is perpetuating their kids anxiety in a weird way. So it's like the parents, like they're, they're really anxious about their kids. Are they going to do well in college? Are they going to get to the college they need? Are they feeling all right? And because of that, they start to over parent and it can, the kids feel that they, it rubs off on the kids.
1: So, I have so many things to say about this. I don't know where to start exactly. I mean, one thing I'll note just quickly we know that anxiety tends to travel in families, and there's a genetic component to that. But there's also, as you say, a parenting style component to that, right? And certainly, some of the culture that we're living in for some families right now, where academic achievement seems to have really high stakes in terms of your long term, you know, your long term prospects is part of it. I also think, though, that there's something more fundamental going on. I recently had a conversation with Perry Class, who's a prominent pediatrician who also writes about sort of the history of kids and mental health, and she made a really interesting point. She talked about how she'd been thinking herself about this mystery and how, sort of looking back to her grandmother's era, she sort of said to me, look... My grandmother, as a parent, had so much more to be anxious about than we do, right? Like in her time, if you went around a room of parents, most people would have either had the experience of having lost a child or having lost a sibling. And yet, you know, as child has become so much safer as as we've really made strides on things like Child mortality, parents are more fearful. And she was like, Why is that? You know, why at this moment, you know, my grandmother, if there was a sore throat, like had to worry that that could be scarlet fever and that that could kill her kid. We don't live with that level of threat in our day to day life. And yet we seem to be more anxious. And she said, you know, I think that as things got safer, we kept kind of raising the safety bar and we kept looking for the next thing and the next thing that we could do to keep kids safer. And that's all great. But, you know, first it's SIDS, then it's bike helmets, then it's car seats. And this all leads to this kind of tricky worldview that if something bad happens, it's your fault, right? As a parent. In her grandmother's age, she was saying, you know, if a kid got hurt in the street, nobody said you know, that's the parent's fault. But now if a kid gets hurt, we tend to say, you know, was she wearing a helmet? Was she in a car seat? We want everything to be preventable. And that kind of adds up to this. If you're a parent kind of view that it's all on you. And I think that's part of this too.
0: No. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, and what's tough too is like parents, I think are aware of this idea of helicopter parenting. They don't, that's not good. It's not healthy for their kids, but they still struggle with stop doing it. Like they, they, it's hard not to helicopter parent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a part of this guilt factor too, and this is a bit hard to talk about, but in, in one of the programs that I look at a lot in the piece, it seemed like I'm going to perhaps regret saying this. It did seem like it was something that moms tended to do more than dads. And I think as a working mom and other people that I spoke to, Sounded similar notes that if you have relatively limited time with your kid on a day-to-day basis, you don't necessarily want at bedtime, at dinner time, at these other times when conflicts and, and issues come up to be, you know, having a knockdown drag out fight about whether the kid can go to sleep by themselves. You just want to make it work.
0: Yeah, you want it to be pleasant because you only have that yeah. limited time. You want it to be right. and I mean, but you, you kind of highlighted some accommodations. We talked about one, if a kid's shy, you tell the teacher don't call on the kid. But then you also you got you got pretty personal with some people and talking about some of the really I mean some would say extreme accommodations about not letting their their kids only eat a certain type of food and that's the only food they're ever gonna eat.
1: Yeah, so let me explain this word accommodation, which was new to me at least. This is a word that this guy, Ellie Leibowitz particularly, who I, who I profile in the piece, he's a psychologist at Yale's Child Study Center who started a program that is working to help kid anxiety by treating or working with the parents directly rather than the kid. And it's super successful. And he likes to use this concept of accommodations. Accommodations are, like you said, the kind of behavior I was talking about with the calling on in school, sort of preventing the kid from having to deal with something. And it's a nice term because it kind of presupposes that whatever the parent is doing is in response to something that already exists. The anxiety is already there. The parent didn't cause the anxiety. They're just making it worse by trying to kind of cushion or bubble wrap the kid. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of examples that seems sort of especially vivid. One had to do with a kid who had eating issues that were so intense that they rose to the level of an anxiety disorder. This child who was five or six when he started to get treatment at the Yale Child Study Center had his parents calculated over three years eaten literally thousands of turkey loaf meals. This kid basically ate nothing but dry Cheerios for breakfast and turkey loaf for lunch and dinner. And his parents were so down to earth and nice and lovely. I, I I really enjoyed talking to them. You would have too. They had a great sense of humor. They had gotten into this really weird situation where, you know, the kid was in the NICU to begin with and had some feeding issues. And by the time he started eating solid food, they, they were very, very concerned about keeping him nourished. And so when he expressed a preference for this food and then a real distaste that later sort of morphed into fear of other foods they just kept indulging it and kept indulging it and it got so bad that they actually like needed somebody to help walk them through kind of how to get out of this trap and in their case going back to the point about sort of rushed mealtimes and and sort of busy pace of everybody's lives part of the solution was that they needed to start eating dinner with their kids so that he was being exposed to a pretty normal range of food because i think the point is like they if they'd had to eat turkey loaf themselves 3,000 times or whatever it was, it, it, this never would have happened. But we get into these funny patterns just to get through the day.
0: Right. So, I mean, you're, you're accommodating your kids so you can kind of just get through the day. But as, you, yeah. but as you said, the research shows as you do that, you just make the anxiety worse because the way you overcome the anxiety is confronting and sort of learning how to manage the feelings of discomfort.
1: Yeah. And, and the research on this idea, this accommodation the idea is really pretty clear and overwhelming. Like almost all parents of anxious kids engage in this kind of behavior; it's universal, virtually. And the more they do it, the worse the anxiety tends to be, and the longer it tends to last. And you know the results they're having with this program that they've developed, just called Space. Are really pretty remarkable. It actually seems to be as effective as any other treatment for anxiety, and maybe more so. And they've published some some good, solid studies on this.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, and now back to the show. Another thing you highlight this, you know, the way we parent and. Wanting to accommodate, make sure kids feel you know comfortable and they're not they're not feeling any discomfort. But also at the same time, we we got this thing where we also want them to mature faster than normal. Like we want them to be able to read when they're in preschool, but we still we accommodate them and kind of want to keep them innocent. I mean, what are some examples of that where you you have kids who are both mature, more mature and more infantile than children in previous generations?
1: Yeah, this is something that I just have noticed as a parent. I think I mentioned that at the beginning I've got a six-year-old and a 10-year-old. And there's been a fair amount of attention to like how preschool in a lot of places has gotten more academic in, in recent years. And this is part of sort of the downward sort of trend following like kindergarten becoming the new first grade or the new second grade. And so there is all this like sort of early literacy, pretty academic content in a lot of preschools now, where like you said, four-year-olds are being taught to read. And leaving aside the question of whether that's developmentally appropriate, I don't think that it is. It's a really weird contrast with the fact that, for example, kids are being toilet trained like later and later. Like it's really not uncommon at this point to see a four-year-old who's still wearing pull-ups, and. don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I have them in the piece. But if you look at toilet training tra- trends over the past several decades, it's pretty remarkable. It used to be that almost all kids were toilet trained around the age of two. And now that's ticked up by something like a year. And I think it's an example of one of these things that seems like it's friendly to the kid, right? to sort of just sort of not push things. I know as a parent that it's an example of something that seems friendly to the parent, right? It's just like one of those things that nobody wants to deal with. We're all rushing, I think I mentioned in the piece that in my case, I we had done one of these like potty training boot camps where you're supposed to like spend a whole weekend on the thing. And a bunch of my friends were like, that's insane. How am I ever going to clear a weekend to do nothing but this? But over time, it adds up to be more time for the parents, of course. And it does give you this funny situation where we're sort of asking our kids to do sort of too much and sort of not enough at the same time. Another example of this. That has occurred to me as I watched the sort of downward trend in age of smartphone adoption or the age at which we're giving kids smartphones, which has continued to trend downward. So we've got this situation where a lot of fourth graders have smartphones. My daughter's a fourth grader. And yet a lot of fourth graders, according to parents I know, and according to kids in her class, still believe in Santa Claus. And there's just a very weird contradiction here, right? Like we're babying our kids so much on the one hand, and then we're giving them a tool that we know, you know, has good sides, like we were saying before with regard to the texting, but it also has some kind of intense sides. Like you're, giving your kid a tool with which they could like be watching Pornhub. You know, you're giving their kid a tool by which they can be cyberbullied in a pretty intense way that never lets up. I don't exactly know what to make of that contradiction, but I do know that by the time kids get to high school, it seems like it's a really bad combination, right? Where you have kids who just haven't learned certain basic life skills and yet they have to deal with this really intense academic pressure I don't think that's good.
0: No. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about, so the, the, way the research shows that you can treat this anxiety early by just exposing kids to their discomforts and this idea of you have to let the kids fail and struggle in the short term for, for things to be better in the long term. A lot of the experts you talk to, it's important for kids to feel uncomfortable. What are some healthy ways that you can get your kids to feel or, you know, get your kids to be comfortable with being uncomfortable?
1: Yeah. And I I worry sometimes when I'm talking about this and when I wrote about this, that I sound like I'm being completely sadistic. (laughs) And I I really, I hope that's not the case. It, It was certainly my impression when I was talking to some of these people at the beginning that I thought like, why are you talking about discomfort so much? One of the therapists I spoke to very memorably said, look, when I start dealing with a parent of a kid who's got big anxiety issues, this is one of the first things I ask them. Like, how does your kid do with like, being uncomfortably hot? How does your kid do with being uncomfortably cold? How does your kid do with being really hungry? And this is not to suggest that we need to like, you know, subject our kids to extreme heat or hunger or anything like that. But when you start to kind of step back and think, well, huh, like why are kids having more trouble with these things? If you look at some differences between say my childhood and the childhood of most kids today, there are some kind of intriguing clues, things that could factor in here. You know, a couple of generations ago, almost all kids got themselves to school, whether walking or biking. Now, almost none do. There are a variety of reasons for that. But I can definitely remember as a kid that like walking to school in an uncomfortably warm and cold weather taught you something. It wasn't necessarily very pleasant, but you learned... Billings. There's been a really striking number decline in the number of kids who have chores to do. One study I looked at said something like 72% of parents today say they had chores growing up, and 27% are giving their kids chores now. There's been a similar decline in jobs, like among adolescents, you know, whether it's after school jobs or summer jobs. I think, you know, what to me unites all of these things is not necessarily, oh, like these things are inherently virtuous. I mean, we can debate that, but they do all give you some experience doing unpleasant and sometimes uncomfortable things. And so, with my own kids, I've started to kind of double down on the chores and tried to slow down on being so so quick to jump in and pre- prevent very minor physical discomfort. Yeah, yeah. No, I
0: experienced that with my so my sons. They start finally started baseball mm-hmm. here in Oklahoma. They opened that up, but now you know, usually baseball is in the spring where it's like pleasant. Now in Oklahoma, it's like it was like ninety seven degrees. <sighs> God. And he was in, having practice and he's like, oh, it's so hot. And I'm like, I know, just drink lots of water. You'll be okay. Yep. And, yep. and he seemed to do fine. And I was like, this is this is good for him. Yeah. I mean, the other bit you talked about where parents try to like alleviate the discomfort of kids is like, whenever your kid has like a leg ache or an arm ache, it's like, <laughs> I want Tylenol. I mean, Give him acet- acetophenamine right away.
1: Yeah, I am so guilty of this. Yeah, no, Like yeah. so guilty of this. I mean, this was, one of the, this was one of the things I thought about when I was working on this is I looked in in the medicine cabinet and I'm like, oh my God, I have kids Advil and kids Tylenol in like three different flavors. So not only am I like, oh, your leg hurts. Let's give you some medicine, but which flavor would you like? <laughs> right,
0: no, yeah, I want that flavor. Now we've had that. <laughs> I've had that debate in our household as well. But it's like, you know, when I was a kid, my mom was just like, she, well, I think what she did was like, oh, yeah, like here, I'll break up some aspirin and put it in some water and in a spoon, and it tasted disgusting. Yes. So I never, totally. I never did that. I was like, all right, I'll just, I'll suffer the leg. Yeah, I'll tough this one out. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is something I there's comfort, there's ways that parents can have their kids be uncomfortable in healthy, safe ways. It doesn't mean you have to like take your kid through boot camp or whatever. Right. But just get, let them get comfortable with, be, with being uncomfortable. Yeah.
1: Like, I mean, in our house, we've been doing more hikes, for example. I mean, that's partially just the fact that the six-year-old is now six and is at a more practical age for doing that. But like, yeah, getting your feet like good and tired, like that's not a bad thing.
0: Right. Yeah. And then when they start complaining, just like, well, oh, sorry. <laughs> You're gonna be yep. fine. You're gonna be okay. Yep. And but another way I was talking about how we preserve our child's innocence is that we often keep them from hard topics, media, news, et cetera. And it comes from like a good place. You want your children to like have their childhood. But do you think that sort of sheltering them from what's going on in the world can actually help increase the feelings of anxiety?
1: Yeah, I I think that it can. So in the article, I dealt with this question really briefly near the end. I talked about some research that I'd come across as I was working on the piece about how kids responded to the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake in the San Francisco area. And this research caught my eye because I was 11 and lived in that area at the time and was super shaken up by the earthquake. I remember it happened the same year that my parents split up and the combination of those two things, their marriage breaking up and like the realization that on a random... Tuesday afternoon, the ground could start shaking really, really hard with no warning and kill a lot of people was pretty destabilizing. Um, And what this guy, this pediatrician who looked into kids' responses to the earthquake found, and he sort of studied this a bunch of different ways, but one of the more vivid ways is by having kids draw pictures afterwards of the earthquake. He found that the ones... Weirdly, kind of counterintuitively, who drew darker pictures of the earthquake, ones that featured, you know, death and destruction, actually did better in the months ahead in terms of their health, their physical health, signs that their body was under stress and inflammation were lower than the kids who drew like really happy, sunny, like all's good pictures. And I started to wonder why this might be. And I looked into this some more actually after my article came out because the COVID landscape made me really curious about how we should be talking to kids about what's going on right now. And there are a few things that were really striking. First, there's a ton of research that's come out in the past like 20 years, basically since 9-11, looking at what kids know and notice about what's going on with regard to disasters, emergencies, really big traumatic things that may happen in the world around them. So the upshot of all of this is, one, like media exposure is not really a great way for them to get information. That's probably like, not a surprise, right, that sitting around watching 24-7 cable news about this or that disaster freaks kids out in an unhelpful way. What was more surprising and more interesting to me, though, was that the opposite extreme was also true. That is, kids whose parents tried to totally shield them from what was going on and didn't talk to them about it and didn't tell them what was going on also did really badly. A specific example, of this is in the, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing in the Boston area right after that. Kids were on lockdown for, I think, the better part of a week and school was canceled. And there was sort of similar to COVID, the sense that like going outside of the house was unsafe. And the kids whose parents didn't talk to them had the worst mental health, health outcomes. So you know i could go on and on about this cuz it's fascinating stuff but the upshot of that and some other research that's looked at kids whose parents have terminal illnesses or kids who have terminal illnesses and how talking to them or not talking to them affects them the bottom line is kids notice a ton like whether or not we tell them what's going on, they know that something is wrong. And what also emerges is that if we don't talk to them, they come up with explanations for what's going on, especially when they're younger and they're very egocentric and they're prone to like what they call magical thinking. They come up with explanations for what's going on. They're a lot worse than reality. So, in the case of, like, mom is sick and mom isn't telling you that she's sick, the kid thinks, like, there's something wrong with mom that I caused. Literally, like, there's a ton of evidence for this. So, you know, I think we have to talk to kids. I'm curious, though, like, if if I may ask you a question, like, how are you dealing with that with your kids in this time?
0: Yeah. I mean, so we've, we've been talking to him about, you know, the COVID thing and then yeah. also what's going on right now with the, the protest and the the social yeah. unrest, what's going on. And what's I mean, we had a conversation, like we had a family, we had every week of a family meeting and we sat down with the kids. They're seeing the stuff on the news, picking it up. And we had to yeah. talk to him like, and yeah, I mean, you can't get too deep with the kids with, with a six year old about uh, <laughs> the racial history of yes. the United States. Cause I mean, we asked like, do you guys know what race is? And my daughter's like, you mean like running? And we're like, <laughs> she's six. And you're like, oh man, I'm like, I'm just, I'm about to spoil. I'm about to like take her out of the garden, yeah, give her the, yeah. the the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. But yeah, I mean, that's we're trying to have that conversation and like what's going on, how it's complicated and it's it's, it's hard. And and they seem to get it, but then they, they kind of, I don't know, they don't seem too keyed in on it. Like she's like, okay. And then just move on and do something else.
1: I mean, it's so tricky with this age because with my six-year-old at the beginning of the COVID stuff, I tried to have him watch some kid video that I that was supposed to be good online, sort of explaining what COVID was and why you should wash your hands and this, that, and the other. And he acted completely bored and not interested. And I kept after that sort of saying, Do you want to talk about it? Like, do you have any questions? Like, this is pretty weird. Like, we're not going to school. We're not going to work. And he would always say, No, no, no. And then we had him keep a little, I had him. Give keep a little diary for the first few weeks when our distance learning wasn't up and running, and I was just trying to get him to work on his handwriting a little bit. And I was like, write a sentence every day about what you did that day, so that you can remember this strange time. And at first, the sentences were so just kind of banal, like I had a ham sandwich today, like I played touch football with Clara today. And then one of the days, he wrote, "Today I'm alive," and. You know, I, I use that as an opening to talk to him some more, and he was very kind of shy about it. But clearly, he actually was worried about what was going on to a much more profound extent than I had realized. So, that, that was interesting to me. You know, one of the tricky things, though, about all this research is, like, with a slightly older kid, like my 10-year-old, you're like, well, they're not supposed to be watching TV, but you're supposed to be talking to them about it. And that puts a lot of burden on Parents, yeah, it does. So you know that that's a tricky thing.
0: No, I mean, I, I was looking at I look at my childhood. Like you know, my dad when he came home from work, he just like he was he worked all day. So he'd you'd sit and you watch the you watched the nightly news with Dan Rather, yeah, and then you'd watch whatever I don't know Miami Vice, and so I mean, it's cop shows. And so like as a kid, like that's you only had one TV in the house, so you had to watch that too if you wanted to watch TV. And so I I feel like. I don't know. Maybe I'm just sort of remembering my childhood that I was more mature than like my kids are, but maybe I am. Cause like my kids with the way their media consumption is like, they just watch their favorite YouTube channel. That's well, it. I, and and I they're never exposed to anything else.
1: I think that is such an interesting point. And I, I haven't, I mean, I keep wondering about this, right? I mean, part of it is that we do have, I mean, it's like a family version of like filter bubbles at large right i mean we're all watching and reading different things and i don't know exactly what to make of it is it a good thing or a bad thing but there has been this sort of uptick in news that's aimed specifically at kids recently some of it post-covid so like lester holt has like an nbc News for kids thing that I watched recently that was pretty good. Some newspapers, you know, if anybody still gets a newspaper, are producing kids' sections. There were a couple of other examples that occurred to me that I'm forgetting right now of things that I'd seen recently. This idea that there should be special news just for kids. And I have kind of mixed feelings about it. I mean, I think it's definitely better than kids not consuming any news, but I do kind of feel like watching, you know, having the news in the background, Dan Rather style, was kind of a good thing in some ways. In other words, you know, the parents and the kids are kind of both consuming stuff, even passively, and they kind of know uh, there's just an opportunity for chatting there, I think. You know, you also mentioned talking to them about George Floyd and protests and police violence and this whole sort of series of things. And I I think that's really tricky, too. I watched Sesame Street did like a CNN town hall on Saturday, and I tried to watch that with my six-year-old. And You know, it wasn't as great as I wanted it to be. It's just tricky. I will say, though, and this just sort of underscores what I was mentioning before again, there's sort of research on what happens when kids, when white parents specifically don't talk to their kids about race. And it it just goes back to this point that kids pick stuff. Pick up, pick up on stuff and they make draw their own conclusions. There was a study out of university of Texas that was written about in this book, nurture shock by Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman, maybe like 10 or 12 years ago. And these parents of sort of similar age kids to, to your six-year-old and my six-year-old all said like, we don't ever talk about race because we want to promote colorblindness and we want to promote the idea that everybody's the same. We don't want to even introduce that as a category. What they found with this kids, th- this, with the kids, though, was that that's not what the kids took away from it. The kids took away from it something else, which is like, huh, you know, when the researchers asked them, like, what do, you, what do you, your parents think of Black people? Like, are Black people nice? They kind of had come to the conclusion that because their parents didn't have Black friends, that Black people must not be nice. So it's tricky. You know, it's tricky. And I haven't by any means figured out the answer, but I'm struggling with it.
0: I mean, so you mentioned some ways that your own parenting has changed after researching, writing this article, like there's more chores, taking more hikes. Any other ways your own parenting has changed as a result of this article?
1: Yeah. So going back to that one program that I was talking to, uh, talking about rather out of Yale, the space program that works with the parents to get them to stop doing these accommodations. There's an aspect of that program that I didn't highlight, which has been really key to how I've changed things. That this The program's acronym SPACE stands for like supportive parenting, anxiety, something or other, something or other. And the supportive part is really key. What they have found and observed is that parents kind of tend to sort of swing between one extreme and the other. And often even within a family, like one parent will be the super accommodating one, often the mom, and one parent maybe more often the dad, if there's dad, will be like more the kind of tough love guy. And what tends to work best is kind of something in the middle where you're not accommodating, but you are providing comfort to the kid and expressing empathy and all of that. And it sounds kind of basic, but I think sometimes we just, we do tend to go to one extreme or the other. So I personally have been trying to sort of think, okay, I'm going to stop trying to prevent discomfort so much. Right. But I might be more proactive about like just old fashioned comfort. And that sounds so sort of silly when I say it, but, you know, again, a, a child psychiatrist friend I was talking to made the same point. And I thought it was really profound. Like we don't somehow at this moment always think that just providing comfort is enough. Like, we think we got to fix the problem, answer the question, know the answers, have a solution. And she's like, that's really not what parenting used to be. And it's really not what parenting probably should be. Like, sometimes it's just enough to say, like, I'm sorry that bad thing happened. Like, that stinks. Like, you know, depending on the age of the kid and the kid, like, let's just cuddle for a while or, you know, let's just talk about it and just agree that it sucks what happened. And so I've been trying to sort of do more of that as opposed to like, let me charge in and fix it. Not prevent the discomfort, but provide some comfort.
0: Well, Kate, where can people go to learn more about the the article and your work?
1: Yeah, so if you want to check out the article, you can find it by looking at my Twitter handle, which is Kate uh, kate Julian, just at Kate Julian. Or if you go to the Atlantic's website and search for Anxious Child, uh, it should come right up.
0: Fantastic. Well, Kate Julian, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: It's been so nice talking to you. Thanks again for having me back.
0: My guest today was Kay Julian. She's a writer at The Atlantic. We talked about her cover article at The Atlantic called What Happened to American Childhood. Check it out, it's available at theatlantic.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is/childhood anxiety. We can find links to resources where we can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code manliness at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. If you've done that already, please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the a podcast, but put what you've heard into action.